Hello, good evening, and welcome to tonight's edition of Resistance TV. In view of yesterday's shameful shenanigans by the Labour Party, tonight's discussions about the misuse of propaganda is particularly timely. We're joined again by Rod Driver as part of our Elephant in the Room series, and the huge increase in political spin and corporate public relations has been met by the abject failure of the mainstream media to properly scrutinise our politicians and corporations. Their failure illustrates the importance of us raising political consciousness ourselves. So, as Lenny once said, uh, what is to be done, Rod? Hi, Chris. Thanks for that uh, great introduction. Uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two uh, presentations about uh, propaganda. So the, the first one tonight is going to give you a general overview and it's going to talk about um, corporate uh, propaganda. And then in a future one, we're going to um, hone in a little bit more on the mainstream media and their role uh, in the propaganda system. Okay, so uh, to start right at the beginning, so propaganda is simply the distortion of information to manipulate our thoughts and actions. Now, to most people, if somebody uses the word propaganda, immediately people will think back to World War One and World War Two and military propaganda. And in fact, that's just a very small part of, uh, of what really goes on. In fact, propaganda is probably one of the most powerful forces in modern day Britain and America. So you've got government uh, propaganda on lots of issues, you've got corporate propaganda on lots of issues, and it's channeled through lots and lots of different routes. So in fact, we are bombarded with propaganda every day, and it's incredibly difficult. To, to avoid it. Now, I should point out when I'm talking about propaganda, in general, I'm not talking about a single article. We can, we can claim that any kind of article in any newspaper, uh, you, you might even argue that anything I might say might have a bias, but that's, that's not really the point. The, the point is really when the whole mainstream system has a bias and limits the, uh, the range of views. Uh, so there was a very famous book written uh, in the, about 30 or 40 years ago by Noam Chomsky called Manufacturing Consent. And he explained how it was that the mainstream media and other sources of propaganda create what he labeled a propaganda managed democracy. And so the idea is that those people with power, so that's governments, but also rich people and companies, they control people whilst giving people the belief that they do actually have freedom of action and that they are very well uh, informed. And the purpose of propaganda is to direct people's attention away from thinking critically about how the whole system works. So people don't think critically enough about the military, about big companies, about finance, about the economic system in general, and they don't think critically enough about our political systems. And the main form of propaganda is something called censorship by omission. So this means that the many of the most important topics are either not discussed at all or they're discussed in a very narrow way where only a very limited range of views is considered reasonable. And then anybody who has views outside of that narrow range, well, they're just portrayed as being unreasonable or being portrayed as a, as a radical. So the main outlet for propaganda is the mainstream media, and we're going to do a whole show on that uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but I'm going to talk about all the other areas where you start to see propaganda once you understand what you're looking for. So propaganda actually builds up sort of layer after layer 
layer upon layer over many years. So things start out as deliberate propaganda. And then people don't challenge that. And over time, that becomes the received wisdom. So if you look, uh, say, in a history book, and we're going to talk about history more in a second, things that are written in our history books, much of which are not true or a distortion, they become accepted as actually our history, when in fact it's, it's not very accurate. So what you realize is that actually propaganda surrounds us and starts to influence our thoughts and our beliefs on many important aspects of our lives. So it limits what gets talked about, who gets talked about, who benefits from the system, and so on. So for example, if you take a magazine editor or a TV producer and they're deciding who to interview, who to have as a guest on a show, who to write an obituary about, okay, they may not be aware of it, but they're sort of buying into the received wisdom and they'll choose certain people who are considered important. And when this happens thousands and thousands of times, the people who read these magazines and they watch these TV shows start to see the world the same way, that these are the people who are important and these are the views that are important. And so what we end up with is certain unstated assumptions about what is reasonable and what is not. So the simplest example here, if we, we leave war and stuff to one side, and I, I focus on other areas tonight, there's an unstated assumption by the mainstream media in Britain and America that it's okay for individuals to have unlimited wealth, to own unlimited amounts of land, that own unlimited amounts of property. And magazines like Forbes completely celebrate extreme wealth. And in fact, it's got to the point now where the vast majority of people define success by how much money they have. But the downsides of extreme wealth, which we've talked about in earlier shows, such as the distortion of the housing market, the distortion of politics, the distortion of the media, those are all ignored. So this unstated assumption that it's okay to have unlimited wealth, it needs to be stated and it needs to be challenged and questioned because it has downsides. So we end up being indoctrinated but to believe that the rich uh, earn their wealth and they, they deserve it and they deserve their success. And again, that's, that's um, something that we need to, to question because if we're uncritical of wealth, then we're also going to be less critical of how our society works altogether. Once you start criticizing wealth, then that leads you into saying, let's criticize how society works to create that great wealth in the first place. Okay, so, so that's uh, a sort of uh, uh, one example of an assumption that is kind of there behind the scenes, but is rarely stated. So let's look at a number of uh, places where we see a lot of propaganda. So uh, one obvious area is history or history books. So you'll notice that if you look at the history of uh, Britain, of British people, and it's similar with American history books, looking at famous people in American history and so on, that if you they, the, the history tends to exaggerate the positives of British actions, of the actions of rich and powerful people, and they understate the negatives of British actions, let's say, overseas in India, in our colonies. Uh, and so a lot of the, the history books are essentially whitewashing the reputations of these people and celebrating the role of the powerful and essentially erasing their crimes. So one very famous example of this would be Winston Churchill. Everything you read on the whole in the mainstream press 
about which the Churchill tends to be very positive, and he's associated with winning World War II and so on. The fact that he was actually a racist and he was com perfectly comfortable with uh, British forces overseas murdering uh, natives in other countries is rarely discussed. And you start to see when you start looking around that there are lots of aspects to this. So uh, in recent years, there has been a discussion about statues being pulled down. Now, this is a great example of something. Statues have always been propaganda. When those statues were put there, it was intended to celebrate a particular person. And essentially, it was to make everybody think that's a great person and to ignore any negative aspects of their history. But of course, many of them were slave owners. They were involved in colonial exploitation. They made a lot of money through the drug trade system, which uh, Britain used to dominate many years ago. So when people started pulling these statues down, that was a very positive step in terms of ordinary people becoming aware of the propaganda role of something as simple as a statue. But in fact, it's much wider than that. So if you look at country houses, when they were built, many of them were status symbols and they've now become monuments to their owners. But again, these pe the people who built them were these, the people similar to the ones who were building statues or having statues of themselves made. So they made their money from slaves, exploitation and drugs and so on. And in fact, uh, I met the, um, the British ambassador, former British ambassador to Uzbekistan um, last year uh, at a talk. And we were, we're doing it, this talk in this grand uh, church in London. And he was pointing out, it's interesting, around the church, there are these uh, sort of little monuments to wealthy donors who funded the, uh, the building of the church. But what the, the monuments didn't say was that the people in this particular case, and, and Craig mentioned a few of the names, and he said that family got wealthy from slavery, that family got wealthy from colonial exploitation and stuff. So this is all missing on these monuments inside the churches. And you have something similar with some street names, where at some point in the past, somebody chose to celebrate a famous person by naming a street after them, and it was again to present them in a positive light and to downplay their, their downsides. So... We have this thing where if, um, if somebody says, let's think of what are British values or what are American values, immediately the, the media will rattle off, oh, freedom and democracy. But in fact, if, if you look more carefully at what really goes on now and what went on in the past, British and American values mean power, money, war, exploitation, you know, not the things that the mainstream media tell us are British or American values. And so... There's, there's something I really want to stress here. The positive portrayal of rich and powerful people in both the past and the present has an immense propaganda role. And once you're aware of this, you start to see it everywhere, that rich and powerful people nearly always, unless they've, they've recently committed a horrendous crime, they're nearly always presented in very, very positive uh, Ways And this extends, of course, right up to the royal family, who are always presented in a very, very positive way. And the role of the queen in doing arms deals tends to be brushed under the carpet and so on. So if we look, say, at um, museums, they're a great example where we have uh, the Imperial War Museum, and it actually celebrates some of Britain's most violent crimes in its colonies, and it celebrates the awarding of medals 
even when people were being awarded those medals for participating in massacres of people in other countries. And these soldiers are often presented as heroes. When in fact, I think we need to question this concept of soldiers as heroes and, and so on, that much of what they do is very negative and, and they shouldn't be seen in such a positive light. If you look, say, at think tanks, that's another example. Most people don't know very much about think tanks. Occasionally you'll hear a report on the news where it'll say this think tank has said this. Most of them are funded by wealthy donors. And what they print has nothing to do with serious research. It's actually just finding ways to put forward the opinions of their funders uh, in, a, in some sort of disguised form. Again, to, to make people uh, uncritical of the economic or the financial or the corporate systems. And then if you look at, say, universities, overwhelmingly, the, if you look at the mainstream teaching of economics and finance and politics and international relations, they're very, very uncritical of the way the system works. You've really got to look hard to find academics in each area who are genuinely critical of what goes on in the world and how the system works. And in fact, if you look at the way academics get their work published, how they become well known as academics, they have to get their work published in certain journals. In fact, the journals have a bias towards buying into the mainstream view of the world. And it's incredibly difficult for critical academics to get their work published. Uh, and in fact, we've seen since approximately 2008, economic students at universities in many parts of the world protesting that mainstream economics uh, has nothing to do with how, uh, how the, the world really works. And you actually see this more widely in publishing, that if people are critical writers, it's incredibly difficult to get any of your work published by a mainstream publisher. They will leap on uh, mainstream academics, they will jump on the writings of celebrities, but they really don't want to do critical books. So there's a small number of publishers who are known for doing the critical books, but on the whole, they don't have the marketing budgets. They are smaller publishers. So it's quite hard for um, critical work to get widely read and so on. And then there's, uh, there's one more area of our societies that I want to make a note of, and that is the awarding of honours. And you'll start to see that honours of all sorts of different types or awards are given to people on the whole who don't challenge the system. It's not 100%. None of this, none of what I talk about is 100%. You know, you'll even see a mainstream media, a mainstream newspaper write a critical article once in a blue moon. But it's, it's, a, it's a very small kind of part of what they do. So the same is true with awards and honours. So, for example, if you look at the Nobel Peace Prize, it, they, it's actually been given to Henry Kissinger and Barack Obama, two of the most insane, warmongering nutters the world has ever seen. It's absolutely bizarre that they could be awarded a Peace Prize. And in fact, the prize that's called the Nobel Economics Prize, it was never really a proper Nobel Prize at all. It was created by the Swedish banks. And it's always primarily been used to reward people who promote the extreme economic systems that we have today. And in fact, the prize itself, the Nobel Prize itself, was set up to whitewash Alfred Nobel's reputation as he was the inventor of dynamite. So, so it has a sort of complex, multi-layered role.
Now, one thing I want to say about propaganda is that not everyone is conscious they spread it. And in fact, this is partly the point about propaganda. If it's effective, people accept it as the truth and then will repeat it without really questioning it to their friends and families, colleagues and acquaintances in lots of conversations. So in fact, everyone ends up repeating and spreading propaganda without really knowing it. So it starts out as deliberate propaganda, but by the time it's disseminated widely, it just becomes information that's, that's sort of misleading and, and deceptive. So there's a special phrase that is worth being aware of, and it's called the Overton window. And it means the limited range of opinions on a given topic that is considered reasonable. So the idea is if something is outside the Overton window, it's a view that seems unreasonable because it's not the mainstream view being discussed by uh, the, the mainstream media. So the idea of it, if it's within the Overton window, will those views come to seem natural and common sense? And uh, anybody who believes something outside that range is considered a, a little bit uh, of a radical. What happens is that if someone tries to discuss a view that's outside that, that range, then in fact, they will often get snubbed by people they know. And they, the journalists will get smeared on the, the internet and so on. And so what happens is people start to self-censor because they want to fit in and they want to conform. And we're gonna talk about the psychology of propaganda uh, again in a future session, because it's extremely important to understand why propaganda is so effective. Okay, so that's a kind of general uh, overview that we are surrounded by propaganda. It's everywhere and it builds up through history when information goes unquestioned. Okay, so for the second half of what I'm gonna to present tonight, I'm gonna to talk about corporate propaganda. Now, um, big companies used to use the word propaganda. They've stopped using it because uh, they've realized it now has negative connotations in relation to wars and so on. So they've relabeled it public relations or PR, but they are the same thing. The terms are interchangeable. So there's, a, there's a, an expert on propaganda called Alex Carey, who's been writing about it uh, for many, many years. And he wrote uh, one of the most important books and he's got a great quote which summarizes the situation. So I'm gonna read that out word for word. The 20th century has been characterized by three developments of great political importance. The growth of democracy, the growth of corporate power, and the growth of corporate propaganda as a means of protecting corporate power against democracy. And this is an incredibly important uh, sort of thing to think about. That the purpose of propaganda is corporate propaganda is to hide what companies actually do. It's to hide the harm that they they do to people, to societies, and ultimately to the planet. So uh, he has a second quote, which I think is relevant uh, for most people who are just sort of new to this to get them really thinking about how deep rooted propaganda is. And he says. One of the great achievements of business propaganda has been to make us believe that we are free from propaganda. And this is what most people think. Most people have no idea that propaganda is all around us. And when uh, it's first mentioned to them, most people are very, very reluctant to engage with the possibility that maybe they've been hoodwinked for most of their life. Now, this is really important, okay? 
there is nothing shameful about admitting that we've been hoodwinked, okay? We all get hoodwinked by propaganda some of the time. It's unavoidable. There is so much of it, and it's impossible to check the information some of the time. So it takes, it takes a while to get used to the idea that a great um, quantity of the information that you're exposed to is intended to deceive you uh, to some extent. Now, there's a very good uh, English writer called Jonathan Cook, who's actually been writing about this recently. And he's been pointing out how effectively companies have been able to separate the link between corporate profit and the harm that companies do to the environment, communities. And I would say specifically, we've got exploitation of staff, exploitation of customers, exploitation of suppliers, and exploitation of governments. And all of that is hidden. And if you look in the mainstream press, all they do is celebrate corporate profits. More corporate profits, that's a plus. That's a good thing as far as mainstream journalists are, are concerned, because that's what investors want everyone to believe. The source of those profits and the manipulation and so on that we've talked about in earlier sessions and the fact that much of this money has not been earned, that the system is rigged to channel it into their pockets, uh, is, it disappears. It doesn't, those topics cannot be discussed in the mainstream. Now, the reason corporate propaganda is so effective is because it comes from multiple channels. So it comes from the, the news themselves, the news media itself, but it also comes from politicians, but it also comes from academics. It comes from advertising, which is an incredibly powerful source of corporate propaganda. Most people sort of take advertising for granted. They never question it. But actually, it changes the way we think about everything, how we define ourselves, how we think about how we look, how we think about what we buy, if it's okay to buy lots of stuff, and so on. So the whole point of it is to distort our thinking, and it's very successful. But they, they have even more mechanisms for manipulating um, what goes on by using propaganda. So they can set up fake grassroots organizations. So you'll see in the media a grassroots organization that claims to be campaigning about something, but actually it's a fake organization set up by big companies to, uh, to present a misleading picture. And then on top of that, they will try to manipulate regulators. We use the term capturing regulators. If they, if big business can get regulators to see the world from the point of view of big business and ignore all the harms that they do, then their life is very much easier. And as part of this, they will give lots of uh, briefings. Uh, companies will give briefings to, not only to politicians, but to editors and journalists. And there's a whole sort of layer of key, you might call them influencers, if the corporate propaganda can persuade them to repeat their message, then ultimately most people are going to be exposed to that message and will tend to believe it if they're not already kind of um, uh, thinking that they need to be critical of everything they see and, and hear on TV and uh, in the newspapers. So uh, the scale of corporate propaganda is absolutely astronomical. It's a huge industry. So the latest study I read said there are three absolutely enormous global companies that between them employ 214,000 people in 170 countries. So the scale of this, it's, uh, it's bigger, much bigger than the, the scale of the, the media industry itself. So there's, there's many more people in public relations than there are in the media. 
So, so it's absolutely huge. They have massive budgets. They have a lot of influence. And uh, they, they are very effective at manipulating what you might call the narrative or the general story on many areas. So if we look at a couple of their sort of specific techniques, uh, one of the things they do is called crisis management, which is really about uh, whitewashing reputations. So for example, uh, in India, in Bhopal, um, about 40 years ago, there was a major um, a disaster uh, by the company Union Carbide, and it killed lots of people uh, in Bhopal in India. So the PR people are called in, and they spent years and years trying to claim that this wasn't the management's fault, it wasn't the company's fault, and that the company really cares, and so on. And it's all about whitewashing the reputation of Union Carbide and so on. And you'll have something similar, say, with the Argentinian dictatorship. So some of you, uh, uh, anyone who can remember back to the Falklands War, will remember that uh, from the 1976 to 1982, Argentina was ruled by a dictatorship. And they had a terrible human rights record. They murdered and they tortured. But they employ PR people to try and misrepresent what's going on in Argentina, what they're interested in, what their goals are, who it is they're torturing, and so on. And, and you see this in other countries. And in fact, the, the most famous example of this would be after 9-11, Saudi Arabia employed PR people to try and whitewash their reputation because people started to realize that most of the terrorists, the hijackers in 9-11, uh, were from Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia spent a lot of money trying to whitewash their reputation. <coughs> so uh, there's another area uh, that I, I just mentioned before, which is called AstroTurf lobbying. So this is the fake grassroots organizations. So there was a very famous one in America called the American Council on Science and Health. So this sounds great. This sounds like well-intentioned people trying to make sure that we do science in a safe way and we're interested in people's health and so on. But actually, it was a front for very many companies and they were trying to defend poisonous chemicals. They wanted to make sure that poisonous chemicals were not properly regulated and so on. And then there was another one that became quite notorious at the time, which was called the Campaign for Creativity. And that sounds very positive, doesn't it? These always have very positive names. But in fact, that was Microsoft trying to lobby for stronger patents. Uh, and again, it was a fake grassroots uh, company. And uh, another one uh, that became very famous in 2003 was Citizens for a Free Q8. And this purported to be a grassroots organization campaigning to have Saddam Hussein, who, had, who was attacking Kuwait at the time, to get the Americans involved in attacking Saddam Hussein. Uh, and again, this was a PR uh, stunt to justify uh, American uh, military action in uh, Iraq. And they actually made up a very notorious fake story about Iraqi soldiers taking babies in Kuwait from incubators and throwing them on the floor and killing them. And this whole story was made up. So what you realize is there are no ethical standards in, uh, in public relations. They, they will make up whatever story they want to make up if they think they can get away with it. 
So um, some of you will be aware that in 2017, a very, uh, very well-known PR company called Bell Pottinger collapsed. And it collapsed because information uh, sort of leaked out about what they were doing. So they were deliberately exacerbating racism in South Africa. They were making fake terror videos in relation to the war on terror. And they had a big contract with the, the US government. They set up networks of fake bloggers and people on Twitter. They were changing Wikipedia content for clients. So they remove anything negative for their clients and put lots of positive things in there. They were manipulating search engines so that um, people would only find positive findings about their clients. Um, <clears throat> and they were doing a lot of public relations for countries with uh, very bad human rights records. So this became public knowledge. And so they lost all their clients. Their clients didn't want to be associated with them anymore. This too much information had escaped into the public. Their reputation had become uh, seriously damaged. And so they completely collapsed. That would be great if there were no more PR companies. But of course, Bell Pottinger's clients would simply go and find a different PR company to carry on doing very, very uh, similar, similar things. So uh, there's a specific strategy that um, some of the PR companies use in relation to certain industries, which is called deny, doubt, delay, discourse. So all the Ds. And so this was something that became famous in relation to tobacco, where the tobacco industry firstly denied there was a problem with nicotine and addiction and the health effects of smoking. When it became clear that uh, there was a problem, their next step was to create doubt. So they set up their own research organizations that always came up with evidence that cast doubt on other people's more serious research, which showed that uh, smoking was bad. So the tobacco companies were coming up with fake or misleading research saying, well, we're not so sure it's that bad. And what you realize is that when there's any doubt about a complex situation, people will just fall back on believing whatever they want to believe. So if there's doubt that smoking is unhealthy, smokers will just carry on smoking. They want to believe it's fine and they'll believe that. So the next step is, is once, you, once there is no doubt, once everybody knew that tobacco was terrible uh, in terms of health effects and in terms of addiction, the next step is to delay. So what they tend to do is to try to come up with a solution that may be in effect, is likely to be ineffective. So they'll say, well, what we need is more transparency about the harm of smoking and the addiction. And so let's set up a body that overlooks this, oversees this, and publish more data. But transparency by itself is known never to solve anything. It's just a way of getting another few more years before people start to take the problem more seriously. So they delay it by coming up with ineffective solutions and doing everything they can to block effective legislation. And the final thing is discourse, where they pretend to engage in a, in a meaningful discussion, but all the time they're trying to mislead and deceive and take things in, in the wrong direction. So that's a standard set of strategies that started with tobacco and they're now used by all the addiction industries. So the sugar industry will firstly deny there's a problem with, with sugar in food and uh, obesity and so on. 
then they'll try and pretend there's, there's some doubt and then they'll try and do some delay by saying what we need is better labeling more information more transparency and this is known not to be a very effective solution uh, and so it's also being used by alcohol and it's also used with gambling and so on so a standard set of um of strategies um so there's there's lots of other examples that we could discuss i mean where we've got about halfway i'll leave the other uh, examples to one side and if we want to come back to chris and see if there's any q and a yeah i'll come that. back to some yeah. of these examples uh if there aren't too many q and a Great. Okay. No, well, thanks very much. Uh, another uh, fascinating uh, presentation, uh, Rod. Thank you very much indeed for that. I was interested in your reference to uh, Winston Churchill because he said that history is going to be kind to him because he said he intended to to write it. And uh, you also mentioned the uh, sort of uh, way in which uh, you know reputations are laundered and so on, and various uh, like the tobacco industry and things like that. Um, but, you know, we've seen uh, relatively recently the BBC being exposed and um, Reuters who were engaged in a propaganda effort in, in Russia, a, a regime change effort in, in Russia, apparently very much against the uh, Reuters own code. And, and certainly I wouldn't have thought appropriate uh, behavior for the British Broadcasting Corporation. Um, but do you think that uh, propaganda's... Uh, getting worse or are we just aware of the excesses um so i think some of us are more aware of it that it's very difficult for me to judge whether that's the the case because 20 years ago i didn't know any more about propaganda than anybody else and and yet i've realized with hindsight if you look at the work of say noam chomsky who was writing manufacturing consent right back in the era of the vietnam war and saying actually we are bombarded with propaganda there, certainly in relation to war, that uh, that it was terrible then. So it's very difficult to make an accurate assessment for any individual, you know, by any individual, whether it's got worse. But I think it probably is getting worse. In that, it's become clear that in the past there were some dissenting opinions, and so uh, there were some very good studies on, let's say, the Iraq War looking at British and American mainstream coverage. And in fact, we may discuss this more next week, which showed the proportion of guests on the mainstream channels who were supportive of war and the proportion who were critical of war. And the proportion who were critical was very small in pretty much all of the, the mainstream channels analysed. But if we leap ahead to the war on Libya, I don't remember seeing any serious critical voices against Libya and the mainstream. It was as if that point of view that, that this is a war crime and that if mm. Russia and, or China were destroying or invading Libya, that would be a monstrous crime and you know possibly the worst crime of the last 15 years. That view completely disappeared. So I think the, the mainstream media is more on message as far as the government is concerned, even relative to the past where they weren't very good uh, at, at critiquing and challenging the government. So I think it probably is even worse. And I, oddly enough, I do think that things like the coronavirus, where some of the government rules and regulations, let's just take a really simple one. So you, uh, 
when when the restaurants had been reopened and you could sit down at a dining table and not wear a mask you could be outside in the queue not wearing a mask but for the few seconds to walk to your table you had to walk your mask on this to me seems slightly absurd but very few people in the mainstream were actually challenging this and i think people outside the mainstream were starting to say that does seem a bit weird you know and I, so i think there is a kind of an awareness by more of the population i'm not saying it's a majority or anything but by more of the population to start to question things they see in the mainstream media and i think there's a second factor here which is that i think a much bigger proportion of young people are much less reliant on the mainstream media to get their news and i think because they're using the internet more i think they're probably exposed to a much wider range of views and i see that as a very good thing and they'll be exposed to more views so they are more aware that there is a problem with the with the mainstream media um, i wanted to pick up on the first thing you asked about churchill about him saying he's going to write his history book sort of thing and actually that's an incredibly important observation in relation to history in that it's been noted in relation particularly to war that history is written by the victors mm -hmm. and the, the same actually applies to all of our histories that actually it is those who are successful through history it's the rich and the powerful predominantly who write history and see the world from their point of view and so you get this thing about uh, you you see so many mainstream thinkers who will talk about british colonialism and say well we were taking civilization to the natives weren't we and that's their sort of main view and the critical view they might touch upon it occasionally but it's certainly not the dominant view whereas if you go and listen to scholars from almost any other country certainly any country on the receiving end and critical scholars in this country and people who look at the evidence they'll say well this business about civilization to the natives that's not really what was going on you know this was all about plunder and exploitation and playing people off against each other and so on so i think the fact that history is written by the victors and is written by powerful people and it's so easy for them to whitewash their reputations is incredibly important actually mm. i mean and uh, you know you mentioned uh, the role of the military and the british foreign policy as far as i can see is really not actually about acting in the national interest it's acting in the corporate capitalists interests and it always has been hasn't it i mean right back from the, you know the east india company and the rest of it i mean so i mean yeah. this notion of of you know uh, heroes and so on i mean there are heroic uh, efforts of course uh, by uh, people in the military but uh, i mean the military's a con isn't it in terms of you know what it's used for well well i i think that's that's quite a quite a good kind of um uh, sort of lead in to sort of whole other area that, that we should talk about. And um, uh, I, I actually write about military propaganda a great deal. And, and perhaps uh, if, if people are sufficiently interested, later on we can do another uh, program all about um, military. Um, yes, that might be interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, propaganda. Well, maybe maybe we should leave that then, Rod, uh, for, for that other uh, program. But uh, let me just ask you then about the Overton window. You mentioned the Overton window. And uh, I mean, that Overton window. Yes, it's, uh, it is a very narrow uh, sort of aperture, as it were. But it has shifted in the past. Can we shift it in the future? I mean, I think to some extent, when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of the Labour Party, there was a, a sense that the Overton window was, 
was shifting leftwards again, where, you know, socialism was being talked about again, public ownership, uh, uh, you know, putting, uh, giving workers greater rights and things like that, addressing poverty and so on. Things that which we'd accepted and um, sort of a privatized, individualized uh, poverty as if it's a failure of an individual rather than a systemic failure. That seemed to me to be a, uh, you know, we were we were moving, weren't we? To, to in, in, it, we, you know, we were actually moving that Arvidsson window uh, in, in a positive direction, weren't we? So, so, do you think it's well? One, do you agree with that? And secondly, do you think it's possible now, again, at some point in the future, to move the Everton window in a more progressive direction? So, so I do agree that it was definitely changing the general tone of discussions among lots of the population was changing when Jeremy Corbyn was around. It did change the tone of the whole debate. And it definitely can be changed. And in fact, if you look back through history, you start to realise that it, it changes, uh, I was going to say all the time, but it doesn't change kind of day by day, but it, it, the, where the Overton winner, what, what points of view are considered reasonable and what are considered unreasonable does change over time. There has been an incredibly powerful entrenchment of a certain set of views in relation to economics that has steadily um, sort of shifted to a, a rightward way of thinking, with this exception of the short period where Jeremy Corbyn did change the debate, that the whole shift had moved much more towards being less and less critical of finance, corporations, and so on. And every now and again, of course, something happens that wakes people up. So in 2008, we had the financial crisis. For a couple of years after that, there were very serious discussions about proper regulation of finance. And even in mainstream um, media, you could see articles talking about what happened all the way back in the 1929 Great Depression in America and how that was caused by similar factors to what had happened in 2008. And the solution in 1929 was to break up the banks. And it worked exceptionally well for 50 odd years. And people were saying, you know, is that a solution? Now, the extent to which these conversations were taking place internally at the highest levels, I suspect was not the same. I suspect that what was going on was that they were trying to come up with clever PR strategies to pretend that they will engage with more strict regulation, but on the whole, trying to find ways to avoid it. So a little bit like this kind of deny, doubt, delay discourse. So you pretend to engage in conversations. It was definitely the case that in Europe, some groups of senior regulators really did want to crack down hard on the banks, and some of them did want to break them up. And it was lobbying by British banks and the British government that actually limited this. So the British government was never particularly interested. But the, the general conversation in the media and among the public definitely changed. So sometimes a kind of window opens. Where, sorry, I shouldn't use the word window when we talk about the Overton window because I get confused. Sometimes an opportunity arises for the, the terms of the debate to broaden. So the window gets wider, more opinions that used to be unreasonable are considered reasonable. And we then have to find ways to act upon that because this is this is sort of what we're missing. We missed the opportunity after the 2008 financial crisis. And if yeah. you go back to the Iraq war when we had the huge protests 
millions of people were protesting against the war. And if we could have find some way to build upon that to genuinely influence policy, then things might have changed. But each time the government is actually resisting engaging with this broader set of, of arguments, and it's doing everything it can to not only maintain the status quo, but to reinforce the status quo. And in fact, the most recent sets of rules that have been introduced, which are to allow undercover operatives to commit crimes and to block protest if it interferes with what anything anybody else is doing, which basically means they can shut down protests whenever they want to. These are really grotesque new laws to be introduced in what's supposed to be a democracy. So if you if you look back through history and say how changes come about, how women got voting rights and so on, it came about because of protests and women throwing themselves under the king's racehorse mm. and lots of other uh, sort of protests that uh, people talked about at the time. And so locking down on protests is a deliberate mechanism by the government to try and ensure that we are not able to move the Overton window. And they're trying very hard to do that. And it's up to us to resist that and to insist yeah. that we have the right to express opinions that they don't want us to express and to find ways. And is it part of the problem as well, though, Rod, that a failure uh, of our political system, a failure of our uh, uh, parliamentary democracy, our opposition? Because, yes, we've got the Tories who are pretty extreme, but it seems to me that the opposition from the Labour Party, from the official opposition, is almost non-existent. I mean, you know, you talked about the financial crash. I think the reason why we didn't have an alternative solution is that they were, you know, they, 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 well, the government, the Labour Party was in government at the time, you know, <laughs> and almost signed in, signed up to the whole kind of neoliberal agenda. And certainly the Tories were even more so. So where do we go from here? I mean, how do we, what do we do to shift the Everton window. You talked about protest and so on. Are we talking, um, you know, direct action? Is that the only way we're going to achieve it? Well, so uh, I, I always feel that I'm at a bit of a loss to come up with really effective strategies uh, and that I, I think that's the sort of thing that will develop over time. I, and on a few occasions, you, you deliberately come out and ask the question, do we need a revolution? And um, I do sometimes think that whilst a revolution on a national level uh, at the moment, uh, because of what I would call complacency by a large swathe of the middle class and so on, is unlikely. I do think that something like a revolution against the Labour Party leadership is something that we need and might actually be something easier to get going. That it's quite clear especially under Keir Starmer, although this has been developing for a number of years, with the exception of that short period where Jeremy Corbyn uh, was yeah. the leader, that they've been, the Labour Party itself uh, has been buying into, as you say, the whole neoliberal agenda. And it's also always been supportive of a pro-war agenda. But now under Keir Starmer, it seems to me that his basic strategy is to essentially make the Labour Party completely ineffective basically to destroy it as a significant form of opposition. And when you get no opposition, then the Overton window either gets stuck, it gets narrowed, or it gets shifted more and more where the establishment want it. And it gets harder and harder to, uh, to resist that. And so mm. 
a, a, an effective opposition is a key starting point to make any change at all. And I, and I do think that if we can start working together to find a way to completely uh, change the way the Labour Party operates, that, that might be a simpler step than, than a national revolution. Mm. I'm not sure it would actually, to be honest. I think the Labour Party is a complete lost cause, but I, I do understand it's important to put put pressure there. And I, in my opinion, the the attacks on Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters and that political agenda that he was that he was uh, pursuing was was very much you know driven by uh, vested interests who were determined to ensure the Everton window didn't keep sliding in that leftward direction. Uh, because they were concerned about the impact that it would have upon them. And what was incredibly depressing is that sort of Labour politicians were, were party to that. It's a disgrace. And as far as a revolution is concerned, I think in order for us to have any chance of, of something like that happening, even, even a kind of revolution in the Labour Party that you mentioned, there has to be a raising of political consciousness and we've got to yeah. do more. What we're, we're doing our bit tonight, but we need to obviously widen that, don't we? As, as much as we as we possibly can, and can I, can uh, that's, just, that's the challenge. Come in on one of the, one of the points you made there, which is about um, how the media essentially smeared Jeremy Corbyn, and that they worked very effectively as a coherent group to to smear him in so many different ways. And so, if if you look at Jeremy Corbyn's policies, if you were to present them in an honest way. To most ordinary people, if you were to say something like, well, let's say his foreign policy is primarily something like, let's try and avoid war if we can possibly avoid it. You know, I think nearly everyone in the country would yeah, say, absolutely. oh, that's great. That makes sense. What the media did was to kind of, you know, get out the cross and say soft on terror, soft on defense. Yeah. And they yeah. actually took something that was incredibly positive and they portrayed it as something that was extremely negative and that frightened people. And it's very. Well, if you remember, though, Rod, if you remember, Rod, where after the the terrible uh, bombing at the uh, Manchester Arena, Jeremy made a speech against advice, and I wish he'd you know followed his own instincts much more, uh, but against advice, and and, and actually uh, spoke about the consequence of British foreign policy can lead to these sorts of outrages, these atrocities on our own soil. And that actually went down incredibly well with a lot of people. People thought, yes, you're speaking common sense. We can see that. So I think there is an appetite still there. So we've got to be, we've got to be optimistic, I think, about uh, you know, the future. Otherwise, we might as well give up, haven't we? And uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to, we're going to keep going. But listen, we've been going for uh, 50 minutes and we've not given a chance for our audience to have their say. So let's see what comments or questions that may have come in. Uh, Lizzie, what, what's been the reaction from our audience tonight? Hi, everybody. Well, it was a bit slow getting going because I think they were so engrossed in what Rob was saying. Several compliments coming your way, Rod. Um, please, please. As somebody said, I've got to watch every single one of your series now. So, um, well, going on from what you were talking about with the recent events of proscribing groups um, by the Labour Party, will the same happen, do you think, to all, all the lefty media uh, speaking as Unity News, part of the lefty media, uh, I find that we have no networking with Labour MPs, with the Labour Party at all now. If we get any information, it's leaked by somebody that used to be a friend when Jeremy Corbyn was leader. So do you think that, that, that 
with the prescribing of groups that are that are amenable to socialist policies do you think that the same will happen to lefty media it looks like it will uh so it's very difficult to know for certain so it's very much the case that propaganda partly works because not everyone has exactly the same opinion. And in fact, even if you watch the BBC, once in a couple of decades, they'll interview a really, really good critical thinker. So the most famous one would be Noam Chomsky, an American critic. So, you know, and in the past, once in a blue moon, uh, a very critical John Pilger would, would get on. And the mainstream media can say, but look, we've interviewed all these left-wing critics. We are unbiased. <laughs> and so from the point of view of a propaganda system, it is useful to have some dissenting voices around, provided they're not powerful enough to be effective. So I don't think they will entirely try to shut down the left-wing media. They would prefer that they sort of exist but nobody takes much notice of them. And mm. so if they ever became very successful, then I have no doubt that um, I, I suspect it wouldn't necessarily be the Labour Party that would do this. It would actually be the government trying to do some sort of censorship on which views are considered accessible, uh, acceptable. So you're aware that there's a great deal of kind of tech company and government manipulation of discussions about mm. coronavirus. But the fact that they try to censor who's allowed to go into schools to criticize capitalism and things like that. So they, as soon as anything develops that might really be influential, then I, I'm sure they will be looking to either shut them down or to smear them, which tends to be the standard opening thing. They'll smear you as anti-Semitic, as you're well aware. They'll do mm. smears about... Um, supporting dictators in Syria, which has happened to a number of journalists and a number of academics. So they'll find ways to smear you. And if all else fails, it's the fake sexual assault allegation uh, as it was used against uh, Julian Assange. And so, because Julian yeah. Assange genuinely had become uh, um, uh, a threat to the establishment. Yeah, he, he really was exposing their crimes. Well, um, somebody asked, off-grid, does it work? Um, you know, off-grid by not consuming uh, mainstream media? Well, in terms of the, an individual's understanding of the world, it definitely works. And in fact, you will never, I try to say this to people, and they're a bit shocked when I say it, but you will never understand the world whilst you consume mainstream media. It's a bit like saying to a propagandist, come into my home and talk at me, bullshit for half an hour, right? <laughs> Nobody in their right minds would actually choose to do that, to have a known lie. I, I use the word lie. Often it's not lies. It's just deceptive information. But to have someone they know is trying to mislead them, invited into their home. But that's what you do every time you sit down and watch the BBC News or you sit down and read The Guardian. You're actually just absorbing information that's mostly corporate and government press releases that's intended to mislead you. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that's that's about it on the questions. Um, there are other questions that aren't quite related. Did landowners start with the no, with the Norman class system, or was it already inter, inter, institutionalized before that? 
I can't answer that question. It's not something I've researched. Slightly off today's topic, I, I feel, but perhaps yeah. something we could come back to. Oddly enough, land ownership is an incredibly important topic that is never discussed yeah. by the mainstream media. And we are going to have to solve it, it if, uh, if we ever want a fairer society. So it's a topic that one day we must seriously have a sit-down uh, discussion about. And yeah. on the beginning of your, your rant, <laughs> um, your lesson, should I say, not a rant, um, forget minimum wage, let's have a maximum wage. So that was about the billionaires. So oddly enough, that is something I am totally in favour of. And again, it's something that you will never see discussed in the mainstream press. So the idea that you could have a minimum, say, a maximum wage, that should be as natural a topic for mm. everyone in the country to discuss just like a minimum wage. Like the yeah. fact that it is never discussed, but more than that, most people, if you mention it, their first reaction is, that's preposterous. You know, they mm -hmm. don't understand the extent to which they've been conditioned by a lifetime of propaganda, which encourages them not to question the mainstream system. And the solution is to learn to question everything. And not just question the things that you think are obvious to question, but to look at every kind of topic and every debate and every argument and say, what are the unstated assumptions that actually exist beneath that discussion that we need to state and we need to question? And in fact, various philosophers have, have said, you know, the way to really do critical thinking is to question the assumptions that you didn't even know were assumptions. You've got to find out what the assumptions are. And there is oh. an assumption that you can't have a maximum wage. You can't limit the wealth of a rich person. But that's ridiculous. Yeah. Of course you can. Absolutely. Well, you don't, we don't need billionaires. And that's probably a good note to end on. We're just about out of uh, time, uh, Rod. But, uh, yeah, certainly the starting point, uh, I think, would be for us to uh, make the point that, you know, billionaires are uh, an anachronism and this country does not need billionaires to survive yeah. in fact we would actually do very well without them thank you very much and as i often say when the likes of lord sugar said that he would uh, leave the uk if uh, jeremy corbyn were to become prime minister i said i would happily drive him to the airport yeah and uh, yeah we don't need these, these these characters in any way shape or form but listen thanks very much indeed again rod for another fascinating uh, presentation this evening uh, we'll be back next week at the same time at seven o'clock so please tune in then if you can thanks for watching this evening and good night